This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll also be in Genesis 3 and Romans 12. But uh, first of all, 1 Kings chapter 18. And, and today on this Father's Day, just because you do not have the title of Father doesn't mean that you're off of the hook. Special days are sometimes tough because if you just make it specific for one person uh, or like uh, dads or, or moms on Mother's Day, well, you miss the others. So what I do on special days like this, I just use the shotgun approach and I just scatter the shot and hopefully everybody will be hit by the end of the day. So uh, ladies, young people, singles, you don't need to take out your smartphones and be surfing or whatever because uh, the lesson will intersect with all of our lives. Now, before we begin, just for kicks, let me give you some information about the average male. And men, you can just see if you're average here. And this comes from uh, Men's Health magazine. The average male is 5 feet 9 inches tall, which surprised me. Uh, Wilson, is that about you? Uh, No? Okay. Um, But I figured it'd be closer to 5'10", 5'11", but it's 5'9". The average male weighs 173 pounds. Wilson, is that about you? I'm sorry. Uh, so, uh, so men, how average are you? 173 pounds, and we won't ask for a show of hands there. The average male is also married. He's 1.8 years older than his wife. He prefers showering to taking a bath. He spends about 7.2 hours a week eating. Does not know his cholesterol count, but, but yeah, that's not the right place to say amen, Jesse. But anyway, they say it's 211. The average male, I can't fathom this. Shame on you if you watch this much television, but they say the average male watches 26 hours and 44 minutes of television a week. What is that? Four, four and a half hours of television per day? Um... The average male takes out the garbage in his household, and my wife and I actually fight over who gets the privilege of doing that. My wife likes to do it, get the exercise. And and this is probably way too much information, but the average male prefers white underwear to colored, and you'll be grateful that I won't ask for a show of hands to see if you're average in this area, man. Um, The average man cries about once a month, one-fourth as much as his wife. He falls in love an average of six times during his lifetime, and I don't understand that, especially if it's true love. The average male eats his corn on the cob in circles, not straight across. I'm a straight-across guy. And the average male prefers his steak medium. The average male can't whistle by inserting his fingers in his mouth. He prefers that his toilet tissue unwind over rather than under the spool. And ladies, ladies, here's your chance to say a big amen. So clear your voice, okay, ladies? The average man will not stop to ask for directions even if he is hopelessly lost. So men, there you have it. The real test to see if you are average. Well, for our lesson... um, we want to go to a very familiar story. In 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophet Elijah is told by God to go and announce to the people that there will be no rain on the land until further notice. 
And the background for this is that Baal worship had taken over and, and the god Baal was thought to be the god of rain. And so what better way to inflict a damaging blow to Baal worship than to just stop all rain for a while. So, so one day, Elijah makes a big announcement. He says, no rain, not a drop of rain until you hear from me. And after that announcement, Elijah disappeared. I mean, he completely disappeared, drops off of the radar. Well, over the next at least two years, and, and the book of James in the New Testament actually says that it was three and a half years. But, but as you can imagine, over this period of time, no rain, not a drop, things dried up, the crops burned up, the livestock died out. And so they began searching for whom they felt was the culprit. And of course, in their minds, that was Elijah. And, and, and how would you feel towards Elijah? I mean, for example, how would you feel towards me if I were to get up one Sunday morning and say, ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement. There will be no further rain from me until fur, no, no further rain until further notice from me. See ya. Have a good life. And I would walk out of this building and di- disappear from sight. What would you think? Well, probably you'd be grateful for no rain for a couple of weeks. But after a few weeks, uh, extending on to a few months, and and after two to three years, your crops would burn up, your cows would die out, your wells would dry up, and probably your plan of action at that point would be to send out a search party, find me, and hurt me. Well, the drought reached two years. No rain, no Elijah, two years. Well, in the third year, King Ahab, who was a wicked king, realized the desperate straits they were in. And so he summoned the one who was in charge of the palace affairs. And that's where we will pick up our reading today. First Kings chapter 18. Please follow along in your Bibles if you have them or else on the screen behind me. Verse 2. Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria. So Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Now, Obadiah was a devoted follower of the Lord. That's a key statement. Verse 5. Ahab said to Obadiah, we must check every spring and valley to see if we can find enough grass to save at least some of my horses and mules. Most of them had died out. So they divided the land between them. Ahab went one way by himself. Obadiah went another way by himself. And well, they're they're looking for grass for the animals. Would you believe who Obadiah runs into? Verse 7, as Obadiah was walking along, He saw Elijah coming toward him. Obadiah recognized him at once and fell to the ground before him. Is it really you, my Lord, Elijah? He asked. Yes, it is, Elijah replied. And listen to this. Now go and tell your master I'm here. Now understand what's going on. Obadiah's out looking for some green grass for the king's livestock. He runs into Elijah. He's been missing for at least two years. And and Obadiah's eyes probably get big and he can't believe it. He said, Is that really you, Elijah? Elijah says, yes, it is. And before anything else is said, said, Elijah says, furthermore, Obadiah, you don't have to keep quiet about this encounter. You can go back and tell King Ahab where I am. But Obadiah didn't like the feel of this. He said, Elijah, you want me to go back and tell King Ahab that 
that, that, that you're here and, and probably what will happen in the meantime, you'll disappear again. I'll look like a fool. And, and, and if I go back empty, empty handed without you, I'm as good as dead. Please don't do this to me. Well, in verse 15, Elijah said, I swear by the Lord Almighty in whose presence I stand that I will present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah trusted Elijah. Elijah kept his word. Verse 16. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come and Ahab went out to meet him, meet Elijah. So it's you, is it? Listen to this greeting, Israel's troublemaker. That's an interesting greeting, isn't it? Uh, you're, you're the number one troublemaker. You shut off the rain. We're suffering troublemaker. But look how Elijah responded to the accusation of being a troublemaker in verse 18. I made no trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, you. Like, kind of like a couple of kids. You and your family are the troublemakers. You have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now, what takes place next goes down in history as one of the all-time great challenges to prove that, that, that there is a God. And, and if you've been to Israel, you've probably been up on top of Mount Carmel, or as they many times will call it, Mount Carmel. And, and, and I've been there different times. Very inspiring. Now, bring all the people of Israel to Mount Carmel with all 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people and the prophets to Mount Carmel. They, then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How long are you going to waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Listen, but the people were completely silent. Elijah gives this rallying speech. You've been sitting on the fence long enough. It's time to you decide if... If the Lord is the true God, follow him. If Baal is the true God, follow him. But, but this nonsense of being swayed back and forth. He gives his rallying speech. No one says a word. Now, we don't have time to get into the details of the rest of the story. It's a great story, but that's not what this lesson is about. Today, we want to look at Elijah and discover what there was about him that enabled him to stand alone against 850 false prophets. So let's look at several traits of a real man. And again, this intersects with ladies as well. Uh, first of all, a real man, a godly man, is not passive. Now, the male species is wired with a natural aggressiveness to explore, to take certain risks, and to achieve. That's why men like to take on hobbies that are challenging. That's why I like the challenge of mountain climbing. You know, I could have taken up quilting, and there's nothing wrong with that. I admire those who have the patience to see a quilt through, but I can't. I just can't. You know, I don't drink. I never have and don't plan on starting. But if I would get into quilting, I guarantee you I would probably start drinking. I don't have the patience to do that. I admire you if you do. Praise God. Bless you. But men as a whole like hobbies that are challenging. And that's why men like to run marathons. That, that's why others do triathlons. That's why some men only hunt with a bow and an arrow or they use black powder. It, it's a challenge. And, and yes, ladies like a challenge as well. You know, they, they climb, they hunt, they do marathons and, and, and they do those, do those things as well as men. But, but this trait seems to be an innate behavior in men, in other words, it's not a learned behavior. It, 
this, this aggressiveness, this, this desire for some, something challenging, it's part of the DNA of a male. You know, in our home, God blessed us with two girls, and so we've never done boys until we had the privilege of being part of our grandson's life. And having a boy around has been a whole new experience for us. Um, by the time Jace was two years old, and, and he turns nine next month, but by the time he had turned two years old, he had already torn up more stuff than both of our two, girl, two girls put together. Uh, I mean, Jace hadn't even turned two yet. One day I came home, and the trim around the main door was missing. You know, the, you know what's a typical door? Six, six, eight. And Jace had taken the trim, pulled it off, nails and all. Before he was two years old, uh, he would take up the floor vents in the central area, and he would be hiding all kinds of treasures in the ductwork. On vacation one year, and he, he was about two, at this time, we were at a pool in Texas, and, and you know, had lettering on the pool that gave the depths. Jace tore it off. I mean, Jace would not be afraid to grab a rattlesnake. I, I, I'm serious, and, you know, some of you know that I've been known to handle snakes, not as a spiritual activity. There's nothing spiritual about that. And I, I, I'm sorry, I don't care what the Bible says in Mark chapter 16, but snake handling in church is not a mark of spirituality. Anyone, anyone want to say amen? Uh, but, but just for fun, sometimes I will grab a snake at the farm and bring it home for Jace. And, but I was mowing the other day and I, I, I came across a snake and I was a little bit hesitant. This was at the house, hesitant to grab it. And uh, I didn't recognize the type of snake that it was. It was just had different markings. And well, I get Jace out there and he said, Papa, I'm going to pick it up. I said, no, Jace, I, I don't know what it is. Oh, Papa, I can do that. I'm going to pick it up. It'll be all right. And, you know, implying that real men do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, one more, one more example. Sorry for the personal examples here. Preachers aren't supposed to do that, but uh, the other day, one of my good friends, Barry, and he goes to, to the early service. He sits right back there by, by Randy. Uh, but Barry, uh, we'd, I'd been talking to him and, and, and my grandson, he's been wanting to go bullfrog gigging. I said, Jace, it's not season yet. At the end of June, then we can go gig bullfrogs. Well, Barry had been mowing his lawn and he saw this humongous bullfrog. And uh, that, that's it right there. And uh, he came in and, and he said, you know, I think that's big enough to feed the entire Pirtle family of six right there. That's got enough meat on it right there. Um, but anyway, he left it in a box outside the church. And so Diet was here and, you know, I just wanted to bless Diet. And, and so I took the box in there and, and I was showing her this treasure of a, of a bullfrog and how big it was. And he got loose in this church. And he is hopping around. Last I saw him, he was in the sanctuary someplace here. And I haven't gotten him yet. I, I'm just kidding. Um, but anyway, there we are in the office area trying to catch this bullfrog. And Jace was there. And Jace saved the day. He grabbed that bullfrog. Um, you, you know, there's just a natural aggressiveness, a natural boldness that seems to be more predominant in boys. But listen. When it comes to a man being a leader in the home or a leader in the church, for some reason that aggressiveness, that boldness disappears. Listen, men. Men freeze up when it comes to being a spiritual leader. And we start spouting off that famous quote of, 
well, you know, when it comes to my faith, I'm, I'm really private. No, you're passive. We are passive. We're weak. And, and the question is why? why? Why do men who run marathons and climb mountains and run successful businesses freeze up when it comes to spiritual matters? Why can't they speak in front of a crowd at work and be strong leaders among their co-workers but when it comes to leading a life group or a Sunday school class or praying in front of a few people? They say, well, I just don't do very well in front of crowds. Do you know why men do that? The reason is found in the biblical headwaters of the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, we see where this passivity began. We read in the Bible how there in the Garden of Eden, the serpent approached Eve with a tantalizing proposition. And he tempted her to eat the forbidden fruit. And he said, if you will eat this fruit, you will be like God. And, And that was the perfect stage. It was the perfect scenario for Adam to step up to the plate and be a leader. When, when the serpent started the sales pitch to try to convince Eve to eat the fruit, you, you kind of just expected Adam to take charge and take a shovel and chop off the head of that serpent and end this first attempt at evil. That's not what happened. When confronted with the opportunity to protect his wife both spiritually and morally, Adam became, of all things, passive. And I know some people say, well, Adam probably wasn't standing right by Eve. He was probably off, you know, working the tilling the soil. So he didn't know what was going on wrong. Do you want to know where Adam was? Genesis three, six tells us, you know, the woman was convinced the fruit looked so fresh and delicious and it would make her so wise. So she ate some of the fruit. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Ouch. Adam was right by her side. And instead of jumping in there and saying, honey, you know, God said not to do this. This is not right. This is, this is sin. He silently watched his wife partake of the forbidden fruit and then joined her in this sin. And what is sad is that men have been imitating Adam's example ever since. Have you ever wondered why the Bible continually calls men to love their wives spiritually, to spiritually instruct their children and responsibly lead their homes? Here's the reason, because the default nature of men is to turn their backs on these responsibilities. Yale sociologist Stephen B. Clark says, men have a natural tendency to avoid social responsibility. And that's true. I've been around... Some men and and the child begins misbehaving and they will turn to their wife and say, take care of this. And and they're not joking. You know, I remember a businessman and and, and he was a good man, loved God. He was president of a particular organization. He was leader in a community. But when his child started misbehaving, I saw this. I heard this. He turned to his wife and said, you take care of this. Today, families cry out for men who will not shirk their duties. Families cry out for men who will tune in instead of tune out when they come home from work. Kids want dads who are involved and will help guide them and set boundaries. 
Women want men who will support them, not just use them, not just control them and manipulate them. Men were really bad about that. We have a bent towards trying to control. And we think leadership in the home is somehow getting our wife to do what we want. That's not leadership. That's dictatorship. And God has not called us to that. Oh, wow, we need to move on. We're not even finished with one point. One more thing before we get to our second point. There's a little nugget in verse 21. We read that in the American Standard Version. It says it a little differently. I love it. It says, And Elijah came near unto all the people and said, How long go ye limping between two sides? So, here's what I take from that. Men, when we are passive, we are lame. It's as if we're limping. Secondly, a real man, a godly man, accepts responsibility. What did Adam do? He certainly did not accept responsibility. He passed the buck. In verse 12, yes, Adam admitted, but it was the woman you gave me who brought me the fruit and I ate it. As the saying goes, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. I know it's really bad. I'm sorry. But, but, but seriously, Adam passed the buck. He said, God, the, the woman you gave me, so, so it's really your fault. You, you gave her to me. The woman you gave me brought me the fruit. And you know what, God? I was I, I just kind of between a rock and a hard place. Don't, don't you just feel sorry for Adam? Yeah, right. Men, I challenge you to accept responsibility. Accept responsibility of making your marriage the best it can be. Don't pass the buck. Don't blame your wife. You know, I'm sure she isn't perfect, and she may share some of the blame, but, but guys, most of the time, a lot of it comes back to us. And then men accept responsibility for your children, and statistics show that children are far less apt to remain faithful to God if their father is uninvolved in the things of God. If the mom has to be the spiritual leader, guys, if you are counting on your wife to be the spiritual leader, most of the time your children will have very little interest in the things of God. I read a study that said that children with involved fathers are better able to deal with frustration, more likely to have higher self-esteem, more likely to have higher grade point averages. They're more sociable. So men, I challenge you to accept responsibility. Thirdly, a godly man leads with courage. When we look at our story in 1 Kings, Elijah led with a courage that is inspiring. He said, just make a decision, you know. If you're going to serve God, quit limping around. If you're going to serve Baal, so be it. But quit living two lives, trying to ride the fence. And when I think about it, I am amazed at the courage of Elijah. There were 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. That's 850 to 1. How would you like those odds? But let me tell you something, men. Again, we're created with a sense of adventure and risk. And so, therefore, when we are faced with the need to courageously stand alone, that can be one of the most rewarding experiences ever. But here's the key. Only if you are standing on truth. 
You know, in the last days, there will be a lot of people standing for anything but truth. Somebody wrote these words. I don't know who it was, but it says, The world has seen enough fakes. They've seen enough weak-kneed, empty-headed, two-faced, finger-pointing, big-talking, no-walking, wimpy-acting, church-playing, godless-living, non-giving, doubting, pouting, gossip-spouting, cussing on Friday, but Sunday morning shouting Christians. It's time for men to be real, authentic men who serve God with a burning, blistering passion. You know, a thousand wishy-washy Christians will never have the impact of one man that has the genuine power of God. And so, to all of us here this morning, men, women, if the power or the fire of God has gone out of our lives, God wants to light that fire again. And we need to take responsibility and see that that happens. Lastly, a real man, a godly man, knows how to pray. So there's Elijah as well as the prophets of Baal and, and Asherah on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal began to pray. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed. The Bible says they prayed six hours. That's not bad for pagans, praying six hours. Do you pray six hours? I don't. But then it was Elijah's turn. And Elijah had such a close walk with God, he didn't need to pray six hours. He prayed a prayer that comes out to, depending on the translation that you use of the Bible, 60 to 65 words. You want to hear this powerful prayer, 1 Kings chapter 18. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you're God in Israel. And I'm your servant, and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. So remember, it hadn't rained for three years or so. You would have thought that Elijah would have started praying for rain, but he didn't. Elijah knew that as badly as rain was needed... What was needed worse was the people needed to turn to God. We put a lot of things in front of God. You know, figuratively speaking, we're more interested in rain than we're interested in God. Have you ever listened to your prayers? Much of our praying involves these words. Listen, see if you recognize your praying. Lead, guide, direct, Protect, supply, help, heal, and then we can't forget bless. And those are good prayers. But we don't spend much time asking God to turn our hearts back to Him. Elijah didn't pray for rain. It hadn't rained for three years. He didn't pray for protection. He didn't pray for guidance. He prayed that God would turn the hearts of the people back to him. 
You know, the call to God today is to understand that the most important prayers are not just prayers for protection and, and guidance and blessing, all those things that we typically pray for. And, and again, it's okay to pray for those things and you should pray for those things. But the call from God for men and women and young people is to pray that our hearts would be turned back to God Almighty. You know, this past week I was thinking about what would cause a man to fly a plane into a building or blow up a car. But when I think about how we as men are, are wired, that, that kind of stuff fits into who we are. You know, we want the challenge of giving ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. And, and these extremists, extremists are gr- grossly misguided. They're wrong. It's horrible what they do. But, but oh, for some men that would be willing to sacrifice and pour themselves into a cause that would make their family a better family, that would make the community a better community, that would make the church a better church, that would make the world a better place. I know you've heard the phrase, remember the Alamo. It's part of the history of our nation back in 1836. How many of you have visited the Alamo? A few of you had had several. I was so moved when I visited the Alamo back a few years ago. There were 187 men against the Mexican army of over 6,000. These 187 men were extraordinary men, but even so they knew they couldn't win against those odds. 187 against 6,000. They'd sent out pleas for help, had gone unanswered. In a stirring speech, Captain William Barrett Travis explained to his men the seriousness of the situation. He told them that they could surrender and live, or they could fight and face almost certain death. He drew a line in the sand there in the dirt. And he said, men, I'm giving you a choice. I'm not going to pressure you either way, but I'm just going to tell you up front. As for me, I've decided to step across this line and I'm going to fight until I die. Anyone who wants to join me can also step across this line. The men begin to consider the consequences, the implications, and, and the almost guarantee, the certainty of death. But one by one, they began to step across that line. One of the most famous, well-known names that did that was Davy Crockett. Another man that faced that decision was named Jim, James Bowie. A few years earlier, Bowie had been involved in the legendary sandbar fight in Louisiana. It's an interesting story. Two men, Samuel Levi Wells III, Dr. Thomas Harris, Maddox, they had had issues and so they agreed to fight a duel and each man brought along several supporters. Bowie was there on behalf of Wells. The duel began, but it ended quickly after both men shot and missed twice. They had decided to let the matter drop, but a brawl soon began with their supporters. Bowie fought viciously in spite of being shot at least three different times right then. In that kind of mob scene, he was stabbed with a sword cane, but the wounded Bowie took out one of his opponents with a massive knife, which later became known as the 
Bowie knife. But anyway, Jim Bowie, who had commanded the volunteers at the Alamo, became very ill. And there's speculation that he had pneumonia or tuberculosis, not sure. But when, when Captain William Travis gave the choice of stepping across the line in the dirt, he was too weak. He was too ill. And But he asked to be carried across the line on his cot. And that day, every man, except for one, his name was Moses Rose. He valued his life more than the cause. He refused to step across the line. He escaped to tell the story that I'm telling you today. He was there. But those other 186 men stepped across the line and bravely fought until death for a cause that was bigger than themselves. Why did they do that? It was certain death. Why weren't they like Moses Rose who slipped out the back during the night and got away? Let me tell you why they did that. Because they saw the greater purpose and were willing to sacrifice themselves for that purpose. And that's how this country was founded. When those men signed the Declaration of Independence, they weren't sure that England could be defeated, but they were sure that it was worth dying for this cause. So men, I have a challenge for you today. And I'm not going to be like William Travis, draw a line in the sand and ask you to die for a cause. But today I'm, I am going to ask you for something. I'm going to ask you to live for a cause. The reason I say that is because in the book of Romans chapter 12, there's such a powerful verse that says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so men... Rather than trying to make an impression and saying that you would die for your wife, why don't you just live for her? And rather than telling your kids that you would die for them, why don't you just live for them? And rather than saying, Jesus, I'd be willing to die for you, why don't you just live for him? You know, perhaps the day will come when I, when we may have to die for our families or die for our faith. If that happens, I pray that we will be real, committed, courageously bold followers of Jesus Christ. But that day is not today. Today we are called to step forward and live. And in so doing, we must not be passive. In living for Jesus, we must accept our God-given responsibility. In living for Him, we must be courageous. And, men, in living for God, we must be men of prayer. So today, could all of us, men, women, young people, could we all step across the line and pledge ourselves to a bigger cause than us? A cause of serving Jesus, a cause of serving people, a cause of serving our families. And one by one, change this world for Jesus.
In our closing prayer, could we just step across that line? Say, Jesus, I'm going to live for you. And in so doing, I'm going to live for my family, my wife, my kids. And in so doing, we're going to live for our community. And one by one by one by one, let's make this a better place for Jesus. Are you in? Would you stand as we pray? And as you commit yourself to living for Jesus. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing, amazing account of Elijah, the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah, 850 to 1. And Lord, how you honored the courage and the boldness and the faithfulness of one man. And Lord, the fire fell. <laughs> Lord, the prophets of Baal, they'd been praying for six hours. They'd cut themselves. They were yelling. They were screaming. And, and your servant comes up, a very simple, short prayer, 60 words or so. And the fire began to fall. It began to lick up the water that had been dumped there. It began to burn up the sacrifice. And Lord, just kind of a side thing, it began to rain. <laughs> but God, the focus was bringing hearts back. So Lord, we ask that you would heal our land. And Lord, even though I think we're all part of this process, we're all important, but yet... I believe that it begins with men, with leaders who are bold, who are courageous, who are prayer warriors. God, I pray that today we would give ourselves to life. And there may be a time when we have to give ourselves in death, but Lord, today is the day to live. And so as we step across this line, God, we want to live for you living sacrifices. We want to live for our families. We want to live for our spouse. Lord, we want to live for our church. We want to live for our community, our country. And Lord, I pray that this week would be different about us. Lord, that there would be just a new sense of aggressiveness for you. And we're aggressive for everything else except for spiritual matters. Give us that new found, that new sense of aggressiveness. Lord, give us that new courage. Lord, help us to accept our responsibility. And then, Lord, let us pray as never before. Lord, thank you again for the privilege of gathering together. And we do so in the name of Jesus. And as we leave here, we leave in the name of Jesus, asking you that you would continue to do a work in our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' precious, holy, amazing, awesome, majestic name. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen. You are dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.